So imagine that it didn't really matter to you who the person was in the White House. Like anybody that you could imagine, like, oh, I love that person serving as president. So I'd like to ask you a question that if you didn't have a particular opinion, because I know right now people are like either for or against our current president. If you were invited to the White House, do you think you would go? And again, like, maybe not this year if you're like, no, I don't want to go, or whatever, right? Like, in general, it's an honor to be invited to the White House. That's the point of the question. So, if you were invited and were sent a letter, do you think you would go? And my guess is that even if you had big plans, you would probably cancel those plans to make your appointment at the White House. That maybe even if it was, here's the announcement, you're invited and it's only tomorrow, that you might figure out how to get to Washington, D.C. tomorrow to make sure I've got an opportunity to go to the White House. Now, what if I take it one step further? What if I asked you that you were not just invited to the White House, but you will get a chance to meet with the president, again, assuming that you love them and would love to meet them and talk with them, And they do not want to just meet you and say hello as a visitor. They would like you to explain to them who you are, how things are going, and what they can do to help serve you and this country and any input you might have on the world today. Now at this point, would you be all the more eager? Say, absolutely, I would not just like to visit the White House and have an official invitation to go. But I'm now being asked to come to the very Oval Office and give my input on how things should be run. Sure. I mean, we all give our input on Facebook. Why not give it to the actual president? I want you to keep that in mind as I read Jesus' teaching on prayer because I believe that God is giving us a far greater invitation far greater than any president or king or queen. But unfortunately, we do not treat it as such. So let's read this scripture from Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 7 on page 811 in the Black Bibles around you. And then all the way down to verse 14. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, I'd like to give you three 
encouragements for how to understand this passage of Scripture. There are three short, simple imperatives. I want you to believe the gospel. I want you to pray the gospel. I want you to see the gospel in this passage. If you don't used to hearing that phrase, we use it a lot here at this church. The gospel is the word that means good news. And it's the summary statement that says, Jesus Christ came into the world, died for sinners and all of humanity to reconcile heaven and earth back together again, to forgive sins and to establish heaven here on earth through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He has done all of this through the gospel. If we would repent of our sins, if we would believe on him, then we would become children of God. This is the gospel in short summary form. This is what we as a church believe and we think is central to our, our church. So first, let's, let's believe that message because believing the gospel is essential for praying the way Jesus teaches us to pray here. Let me show you that from what it, I would call the introduction and the conclusion or maybe put the footnote So we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer second, pray the gospel, but first let's look at the surrounding words around the Lord's Prayer. So the intro and conclusion start out first with the intro. And when you pray, and this makes people think that it's flowing well with the previous sections. By the way, look at verse 5, and when you pray, and it sounds like it's the exact same, but in the original language this is a different phrase. And in fact, all of this section of the Lord's Prayer really doesn't look like it belongs. If you remember from last week, chapter 6, verse 1 starts with this phrase. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Thesis statement, three examples. Now, when you give to the needy, verse 2. And then when you pray. And then look down at verse 16. And when you fast. Those phrases and those sections are all identical and they're very much a unit of thought. This phrase to start the introduction when you pray is a different phrase. It's a similar meaning, but it's more like as you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. This doesn't fit that flow. You would think that the fasting thing would come first, but he just talked about prayer and then inserts in this kind of jarring Lord's Prayer and It just so happens that becomes one of the most famous teachings that most people might know about Jesus. Another way to think about it is that this section, starting here with this jarring introduction of, whoa, what happened to the flow of thought? We're now at the center of the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6 is the middle chapters, right? 5 and 7, so 6 is the middle, so that's the center. But then we're in the center of chapter 6, and then we're in the center of the arguments on your righteousness not being done for men. So we're at the center, center, center. Right here is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now the phrase, empty phrases as the Gentiles do, there in verse 7. And when you pray, the instruction is, do not heap up empty phrases, which is very different from the instruction he gave just a moment ago about praying to not be seen and get praised and applauded. That's the main idea of the bigger section. Now we have a whole different thought. Don't do it with empty phrases, for they think that 
the pagan Gentiles, that they will be heard for their many words. And this is why I read for you just a moment ago the story of Elijah and the story of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Does it make sense? What were they doing? 450 men lofting up prayers, dancing around, cutting themselves with swords, praying, 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 thinking that if they keep manipulating God in some form or fashion, that eventually he will bring fire down. And what does Elijah do? He mocks. He stands back. He's just one guy, and he looks at them and says, is your gods like using the restroom or something? I mean, there's such sarcasm and irony. You should be laughing when you read that part of the story. Then Elijah's turn, and after, by the way, and the part I skipped in the story is when he pours water all over the stones and the animals, and it's like, whoa, he is making a tall task to get a fire going there, and he just says one simple short prayer, and boom, fire falls down from heaven. Like, yes, that's a great example of the one true God versus all of the false gods who have no ears, have no voice, have no power have no existence. But what's Jesus' point here? I think he's referring to this to say, do not try to manipulate God. Do not try and think that if I pray more or longer or louder or use eloquent words, that then God will hear me. Sometimes I think a lot of us struggle with this, that if I get up here and I sound really preachy and I sound really enthusiastic, like, whew, That's a good prayer, a strong prayer right there. And Jesus is saying that is false. That is not true. If you get up here and stumble and you say a short, quick, little prayer, Jesus is saying, good, it's a good prayer. Do you think that if you pray more or longer that God will answer your prayers more? Ask yourself that question. I think that a lot of us struggle with this. This is something we need to realize, that short prayers are good prayers. It is okay to pray short prayers. Jesus commends it. You don't need to keep babbling on. Just say, say your prayer. I love the way he uses Elijah as this example, more than likely, because in James chapter 5, it says a very similar idea. James, the half-brother of Jesus, James says, Do you remember Elijah? Well, the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. Think about Elijah. He was just an ordinary man, a common man, a man with the same nature as you and I. So remember, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. So can't you see that with Jesus' point here, you have to believe in the gospel in order to pray this way. You see, the opposite of the gospel is to pray in such a way where you're going to earn God's favor. I'm going to do enough and then God answers my prayer. That is anti-gospel praying. If you're praying that way, you're praying like a pagan, like a non-Christian. The way Christians pray is out of the overflow of the acceptance they have already received by the gospel. And knowing that there's nothing that you can do right now to encourage God to love you more than he already has loved you in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? I want to encourage you to believe that. And if you do, it will transform the way you approach prayer from the beginning. 
I don't even think you can follow Jesus' teaching if you don't first believe in God's love for you. Prayer is not a transaction between you and the big boss guy in heaven. Prayer is a child talking to his mom and dad. As Jesus says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Let me read that again. Do not be like those people, for your Father. How does the Lord's Prayer start, by the way? Father. How many times has he said Father in these 18 verses of this center section? Ten out of the 18 verses. Do you think Jesus wants to beat it in our heads? Your God is a Father. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is likely a reference to Isaiah 65, 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The point is not that God already knows what you need, so don't bother asking. Well, He already knows. Why do I need to ask? Is that how your children should teach my kids? Well, I already know what you really need in life, children, so don't bother asking me for anything. Like That sounds like a cruel, awful father. The idea here is that God loves to hear your prayers. The point is to get used to stop thinking that you can impress God or do something different. It's not going to work. That's the point. So as a father, I know that my children have certain needs. And so when they ask if it fits within those needs, I give it to them because I love them. And then sometimes they ask for silly, crazy things. I'm like, no, it there's, there's, doesn't matter what you're going to do. You could whine. You could complain. You could raise your voice. You could try and butter me up. Oh, Dad. You know? There's nothing that you can do that's going to change my mind because I know what your needs are before you even ask them, and I know better than you do. The problem is that most of us don't treat God that way. So as an illustration, not for how to parent, but as an illustration of what I mean by this. Uh, I was in the parking lot, or driveway of my home, and I allowed my two-year-old son to climb up on my lap and drive the car like a few feet. I don't know, like it's probably a bad idea, because later on we're driving down a bigger road and he starts asking, Dad, can I now drive the car? I did it before, you know? And then he starts to scream and say, I want to drive, you know, and starts throwing a big temper tantrum. Now, again, probably not the best thing to do to get him all excited to think, I can drive with Daddy anywhere we want to go, because then it put myself in that situation. But don't you see that there's no chance in any way that I'm going to stop the car, get him out of his seat that he's in, all buckled up, his whatever, and then sit him in my lap and drive the car with me. Like, there's, there's no chance. I'd be an awful father. And this is what it means to be a loving, heavenly father. So now imagine again, you've been invited to the White House, and you're not a visitor, and you're not just a person that's going in to give counsel to the president, but now picture that you are a family member because the president of the United States is your dad. You are his son or daughter. When you come into the White House, you do not have to sneak your way into the Father's presence. You belong. Do you believe the gospel that you belong in the Father's presence? That you have access to the Father's presence? This introduction teaches us that before you even pray, believe. Believe that God already loves you as a father, and there's nothing that you can do that will change that. 
Let's drop down to the conclusion now. The footnote at the end of the prayer. And see that again, it's teaching us about believing the gospel. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It feels like a footnote because he has this beautiful Lord's Prayer, and it's all poetic and nice, so memorable. And then there's like this, oh, by the way, if you don't forgive people, I'm not going to forgive you. And it sounds like, what? Oh, that's so like harsh and sounds rough, but what do we make of this? Especially based on the introduction comments that to pray to God is a family-based, grace-filled relationship. And these verses at the end of the prayer, they seem like they're about transactions. Well, if you don't do this, then I'm not going to do that for you. Whoa, does that undermine my whole first point about believing in the gospel? And my argument is going to be, no, it actually affirms the first point. Believe the gospel. Many people take this to mean if you don't forgive your friends, your family members, your coworkers, whoever's hurt you, your neighbors, and you go to God and say, God, I'd like to be forgiven of my sins, that he then turns and says, nope, go back and forgive those people. A lot of people think that that's what it's trying to say. It looks that way on the surface. But rather, I think that what's going on here is that God is saying that if you do not forgive other people, you will not be the kind of person that even wants to ask God for forgiveness, so you won't receive it. You don't have a heart of repentance. You don't have a heart that's been transformed by God's forgiveness of you. So why are you then going to ask for God's forgiveness again? You're not. You don't even forgive other people. I think that's more the point and the idea. This is made clear, I think, in Jesus' story, if some of you are aware of this. Later on in Jesus' life, he's going to tell a story about a man who owed a big, big debt. And then the master who was overneath this over the servant. He forgave him of all that he owed him. And he was so thankful and said, oh, wow. And then he went away. And then right away, he had two people that owed him money. And they were small amounts, especially comparatively to his. And this man did not forgive those people of their debts. And he demanded that they pay it right away. And Jesus used that story to say, look, that man did not really receive the forgiveness of debts. He did not get it. He missed it. This man is not understanding the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is full of people who believe that God has forgiven a big debt, a massive debt. The debt of all the sins of the world was hung on Jesus as he died on the cross. And he says as he was on that cross, Father, forgive them. But they know not what they're doing. And when people stare into Jesus on the cross and hear those words of forgiveness coming from his mouth, it melts the heart. It changes the soul. It puts a spirit within you that says, I will do whatever to forgive those around me. Because if he did that for me, if he, if he paid the massive debt, well, then how can I not pay this smaller debt, especially in comparison? That, I believe, is the point that Jesus is getting at, and that's why it is bookended by statements that make you, you've got to believe the gospel in order to understand how to approach God in prayer. As we're making this point about forgiveness, I want to just quickly highlight as something for you to think about. God did not just forgive you in his heart, as so many of us sometimes do. Well, I forgave them in my heart. But did you go, like, reconcile with the person and do whatever it takes to make things right with that relationship? No, no, no. I just already forgave them. That's all I needed to do. Imagine if that's the way God dealt with us, with his 
forgiveness toward us. Well, I'm in heaven, and I forgave you with my heart, but I don't actually need to do anything like die on the cross and pay for sins or whatever else. That's a watered-down, cheap perspective of forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly. It, it often requires us to have difficult conversations. It requires, ultimately, somebody to take the hit. So imagine you're in a relationship. Somebody's hurt you. You can either hurt them back or you can forgive them. To absorb that forgiveness, to absorb that hit, whatever that hit was, a word, a strike, some sort of violence done to you, abuse, to forgive that person is to not retaliate with more violence, but to absorb it and say, I will not treat you the way you deserve. And I will communicate that to you. I will tell you that. The powerful love of the gospel is that God did not just forgive us in his heart and then say, well, yeah, you guys just go on. I've already forgiven you. He comes down to the earth and tells us about our forgiveness, declares it to us, and encourages us to believe it. So, know that your God is your Father. He cannot be manipulated. He knows what you need already, and there's nothing that you can do that will make him love you any more than he already does through the gospel. So believe the gospel. And believe the gospel that even though you have a big, messed up life and a whole lots of sins and failures mounted up against you, he has forgiven you, so freely forgive to everyone around you. And it requires the gospel to believe both of these things. Secondly, let's pray the gospel. Let's look at the Lord's Prayer itself. As I was doing so, I was thinking, you know, a lot of times when we pray, we probably don't have the Lord's Prayer affecting our prayers. And instead of the Lord's Prayer, it often sounds like this. My personal, spiritual, individual deity. Help me. I'm in a big mess. Help me, please, be successful so that my name can be great. Please bless my church and not any others, especially the one I just left. I will try to do your will, but will you please just help me get this boyfriend or girlfriend? Please, come take me off this earth. I want to live in a spiritual existence instead of the good creation that you made. I need rescued. Help me in my finances, in my material needs. I know I have probably more than I already need, but as I look at my retirement, it looks scary. Oh, and forgive me, I've sinned a lot. Instead of that, how about this? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want to give you three suggestions about how to pray the gospel through the Lord's Prayer. First, enter the White House. Enter through the door of the throne room of God through the front, not the back. In other words, the way I tried to illustrate the way we often pray is first and foremost, we pray for what? Help me, my personal individual deity, unnamed, unpersonal God. This is a lot of times the way people pray in the world today. Not necessarily saying all of you, just general comments about prayer. 
And so what we see here is that Jesus is telling us that there is a big difference between pagan and non-Christian prayers versus the Christian prayer. And if you wanted to put it in a phrase, it'd be Christian prayer is God-centered, gospel-centered prayer, whereas a lot of normal prayers by the average person are me-centered, individualistic prayers. Look at the way Jesus tells us to enter in through the front door and not the back, not with deliver me. Notice that's the last thing, the last phrase of the prayer. He begins by setting your gaze on the Father and adoring, come, let us adore him as we just sang. Come, behold our God, seated on his throne. That's how you should begin. Open the front door and let him greet you with his personal presence rather than trying to sneak around into the back door like you're some unwanted visitor going in through a side window and into the hallway, into the kitchen or something. That's, that's not the invitation. The invitation is personal and it is powerful. Secondly, notice the next phrase, hallowed be your name. Do you realize that the very first petition, the first request, the first thing that the person that is shaped by the gospel asks for God is nothing about themselves. It is everything about the glory and grandeur of God. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to honor. You know, sometimes you might hear that word about this is hallowed ground, meaning that it's honored ground. And so what this is saying is that God is a personal God. He's a father, and he has a name. His name is Yahweh in the Old Testament. His name is Jesus in the New Testament. Yahweh takes on flesh in the New Testament. And so we're to know him personally in those ways, and we're to honor his name because his name is above every name. And the problem is that the world does not honor his name, and so that's why this is a good start to your prayers. The world is full of a lot of dishonoring the name, rejecting it, not believing in it, not even thinking it exists, distorting who he is. And the first prayer out of a God-centered, gospel-saturated heart is, God, honor your name, hollow your name, and make your name great in Palatine, in my heart, in my family, in the nations. Hollow your name. May your kingdom come. Notice he's still God-centered. The first half of the prayer is still all on God and his kingdom and still doesn't get to you or any of your needs or wants or desires. He'll get there, but not yet. It begins through the front door with a God-centered perspective on your kingdom come. Not my kingdom, not the kingdom of your church, not the kingdom of your family or your business. Although we might want to see those things prosper, do you have a grander vision for the kingdom of God? Do you rejoice when other churches are prospering with leading people to salvation all around Chicagoland or around the world and have true delight? Do you rejoice when you see other people have great opportunities to do things for God's kingdom even though you wanted that opportunity? Can you still rejoice because it's a win for the same team, the same kingdom? Your kingdom come, whether it comes through me or not. In this particular instance, God, we, we want your kingdom. Your kingdom, not mine. Your will be done. Not my personal preferences, desires at the top of my list. Your, your will. Let me submit to your will, whatever that is, God. Even though sometimes it may require suffering, sacrifice, difficulty, and pain. Your will be done. Probably one of the most 
misunderstood phrases or neglected phrases on earth as it is in heaven. The gospel, if you pray it, is not about praying for you to be rescued from the earth, to be transported out. So much of religious language these days is very much consumed with what? Where are you going to go when you die? You're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell? This is not really the main way the Bible talks, although those can be good, helpful conversations at times. The main primary way you should talk and pray is, God, bring your kingdom here on the earth through the reign of your presence. That is the prayer of the gospel because that's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not that your human body is corrupt and the material world is bad, and all we need to do is just be lifted up out of with our spirit form into some non-physical existence. That's called Platonism. That's called Gnosticism. All of the earliest Christians said that's terrible heresy. I've been spending lots of days reading about that this last week. So if you want more info than you could ever ask, just ask me at the door and I'll talk your ear off. But the point is, is that the very start of Christianity is to say Jesus came down in the incarnation and he didn't come in spirit form. He came in human form. And he lived a a bodily life on this earth. He walked the very places that we walk. He lived our life and he died the death that we should have deserved. And then through that death, he then did something glorious. He rose again. He conquered death three days later. And then he ascended to heaven to complete the whole story. Because God did not just descend and come down. Oh, that's great. I mean, that is really great. But he then ascended up and then made access for heaven and earth to be reunited together again so he could consume all things in heaven and on earth in him. Read Ephesians chapter 1 later today and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The fullness of heaven and earth being established in the message of what Jesus did in the gospel so that all of the separation of the evil and terrible of the earth and all the goodness of God's presence, they can now be reunited through the presence of Jesus which is now called the Holy Spirit. So another way to think about this prayer is you're praying, God, bring the Holy Spirit. Bring the power of your presence here on earth now in me so I can be a representative of heaven on earth. Embassy Church, that's not just a fun, cool name. It's not because we like the Embassy Suites hotels. Embassy Church is because we believe this is a people that have had the presence of God come into their heart and life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're now a collective body of heaven's representatives on the earth. So when we pray for the expanse of the kingdom, we're asking for more embassies, more representatives, more individuals and communities of people that look like heaven. That's what that prayer is about, and that's the front door. And you're just getting started with the Lord's Prayer. Second thing, first you should go in through the front door. Second, don't come to the Lord's Prayer alone. This is a simple but yet profound and very overlooked point. What do I mean, don't come alone? Well, read all of the language of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, not my personal Father, our Father. Give us this day. Forgive our debts as we will forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us seven different times, all plural, talking about corporate prayer. When should we pray? Well, certainly we should pray alone in the secret place as Jesus talked about just earlier ago. 
But it seems as if Jesus especially thinks that if his message is to create a community of people and embassies here on earth, as I just communicated, heaven on earth, with transformed people and transformed communities, that we would then pray together. We would enter the White House, the throne room, the presence of God, arm in arm, hand in hand, bowing before the Father again and again. So these are corporate prayers rather than individual prayers. If you're struggling with praying, one of the easiest ways to pray more effectively and be an encouraging in your prayer is just to pray with someone else. It's just that simple. I'd probably say the greatest growth in my prayer life has always been by being in prayer meetings with other people and just praying together. Thirdly, you know after you had a good visit at somebody's house, had a nice dinner or something, and they say, hey, let's do this again sometime. When you go into the throne room of God's presence, he says, I want you to come back tomorrow. Let's not just do this sometime. Let's do this again tomorrow. Give us this day our daily needs, including our bread, our forgiveness, our deliverance from evil and not being led into temptation, the daily dependence to come to him every single day because the door is always open. Because, again, remember, you're a son or daughter. You don't need an invitation anymore. You have a room in the house. If you don't know how to pray, if you're feeling like, I just don't even know what to say, let me give you another simple example. Use the Lord's Prayer. And maybe, if that's all you do, Jesus says short prayers are good. Just pray the Lord's Prayer. Infuse the meaning of it that hopefully you're hearing in this particular teaching. But just go through it. And even just start with those words. You know, early Christians... For several hundred years, what they did was take an old Jewish practice, which was pray three times a day. You can read about it in like Daniel and other books that Jews would pray three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. And what they did was pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. And sometimes it is sad, I think, about the commitment of other religious groups where they pray maybe five times a day or they pray in various hours of prayer. What if you disciplined yourself to just do something real short and simple? And set aside time to just walk through the Lord's Prayer three times a day. I guarantee that that would transform your perspective on a regular basis. It's just short, simple, practical advice. Pray the Lord's Prayer, even if it's just this. If you want to take it a step further, take each phrase and then pray over that phrase with the meaning that's behind it. So begin by praising God and adoring Him and just giving Him praise. You're not asking for anything yet. And then move on from there and then start praying for the kingdom. Pray for the church. Pray for the missionaries. Pray for the spread of the gospel. Pray for God's will to be done in your life and in other people's lives. Like, God, I just really want the name and honor of God throughout all of the people and interactions that I have. And then move from there and pray for your needs. Daily needs, practical needs. And depend on God through the Lord's Prayer. Sure, it could get routine and it is a danger for us to take such familiar, recited words and make it routine. But my hope and encouragement is that when you hear this prayer, when you recite this prayer, like we did just a moment ago in the service, and I had us just pray that prayer. Was that like, okay, I've done this a thousand times in Catholic school, or I've heard that over and over again. It had no, no meaning to it. I'm not encouraging that. I'm not saying just go through the motions. But this is a helpful tool. Jesus is teaching you, hey, this is how you should pray. So why not just do what Jesus says? 
So pray the gospel after you believe the gospel. And lastly, let's end by seeing the gospel. I love that Jesus is one of the best people in terms of an example that doesn't just tell you, here's what you should do, but he did it himself, didn't he? Didn't Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, pray this prayer? I was thinking about the way that Jesus prayed right before his death. Father, glorify your name in my hour of death so that they then will glorify you. He prayed, hallowed be your name. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, please take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will. May yours be done so that heaven and earth can be reunited together again. He was led into temptation by Satan. He was asked to turn turn stones into bread. But by his reliance on God and dependence on God for his sustenance, he said no. And he was delivered from evil. And lastly, as I mentioned earlier, he prayed, Father, forgive them. It's the one thing Jesus didn't have to pray. Sinless as he was, you know, kind of convenient. He never had to say, Father, forgive me for my, my sins and my many debts. He didn't have any. But then again, he kind of did. When he was on the cross, the scriptures say that he became sin, who knew no sin. So then we could become the righteousness of God. See, as you look at Jesus and you think about what he did, he, he prayed the gospel of the Lord's Prayer with his life. Not just telling us how to pray and giving you some religious instructions so you could be a better prayer. Good for you. No, Jesus does something much grander. He lives it out. He makes it his reality. And my guess is the reason he was able to do so is because he prayed it again and again and again. And it sunk down deep into his soul. And this is, in fact, one of the mysteries of what prayer does. The more that you pray for something, the more that you see God start changing your heart about that thing. So pray, like Jesus did, again and again, and see if you do not slowly become more and more transformed like Jesus. Live like he did, and be able to pray these words, not just with your mouth, but with your lives. Let's pray now together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts just as we have forgiven others of their debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.